Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. I'm your host, Fred Dews. In today's podcast, my interview with Brookings scholar Beth Akers about the so-called student loan debt crisis. But first, here's a short segment from the Brookings Press about America's secret war against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. In February 1989, the CIA station chief in Islamabad cabled headquarters with the simple message, We won, following the withdrawal of the Soviet Union's 40th Red Army from Afghanistan, ending its 10-year operation in that country. Bruce Rydell, senior fellow and director of the Brookings Intelligence Project and veteran of a 30-year career with the CIA, is the author of the new Brookings Press title, What We Won, America's Secret War in Afghanistan. In this clip from a recent event, Rydell debunks a popular misconception about the conflict. I know you all think it was Charlie Wilson's war. It wasn't. It was Zia al-Huq's war. The war in Afghanistan, or more properly, the war against the Soviet 40th Red Army in Afghanistan, that began on Christmas Eve, December 1979, and ended in February 1989 with the retreat of Soviet forces across the Amur River back into the Soviet Union, was a global game changer. One part of that is pretty obvious. Uh, The war ended the myth of the invincibility of the Soviet Army. From 1942 on, the Soviet Union had never lost a battle. The perception was the Red Army was invincible. It was not. It was defeated in Afghanistan, and to add insult to injury, it was defeated by basically illiterate Afghan tribesmen assisted by the United States Central Intelligence Agency. To find out more about the book and how to get your own copy, visit our website at brookings.edu slash whatwewant. And now, the interview. As of last year, student loan debt in the U.S. exceeded $1.2 trillion, more than any other type of household debt except home mortgages. Media accounts have described this as the potential next debt bomb for the U.S. and the next financial disaster. But is there really a student loan debt crisis? To find out, I spoke with Beth Akers, a fellow in the Brown Center on Education Policy at Brookings. Beth, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about uh, the student loan debt issue. I won't call it a crisis yet. Uh, first, I just want to ask you real quick about your background. Uh, you're fairly new to Brookings, and you have an economics background. I know you were part of the um, White House Council of Economic Advisors, so you're bringing a, an economist's view to education policy. Can you talk a little bit about your background and how you came to Brookings? Sure. So as you said, my training was in economics. I have a PhD from Columbia. Um, I started working on the education issue actually after I, I took leave from graduate school to work at the Council of Economic Advisors. So I was there during the uh, beginning of the financial crisis, and at the same time, there was potential for a liquidity crisis in student lending. So I really got my feet wet with the education issues, returned to Columbia, wrote my dissertation on this topic, and have been committed to it since then. Okay. So on to student lending and the student loan issue. I want to read some headlines from the news. Business Week. Student loans, the next big threat to the U.S. economy. Chicago Tribune. Student debt holds back many would-be home buyers. Washington Post, student loans seen as potential next debt bomb for U.S. And Bloomberg, indentured students rise as students corrode college ticket. I could go on like that, but I won't. How do you react to these kinds of headlines and the kind of media attention, if not hysteria, to uh, this issue? Well, so honestly, I got my first taste of this stuff when I started at Brookings about two years ago and was getting 
uh, frequent calls from reporters about higher education issues in general. And they always said to me, Beth, is a a crisis on the horizon in student lending. And, uh, you know, I was new to Washington, and so I wasn't really an active participant in this narrative uh, at that point. Uh, And so what I thought to myself is, well, what evidence do we have to, to shed some light on this issue? And I kept coming back to the idea that the returns to higher education on average, are very positive. So if you think of it as an investment, the financial returns are quite large. Um, So it's difficult to reconcile how we have all these bad outcomes coming from people borrowing to pay for something that in general is a very good investment. And so this is really what prompted a lot of my recent research, which is trying to bring some data to the conversation about student debt. But for some people, is uh, there a crisis in their their personal holding of student debt? Or is it... uh, is it kind of isolated to just a few people? You know, I think that's exactly the right point. So the question is always, is there a crisis on the horizon? The implicit question there is, do we have another mortgage crisis on our hands? Uh, and I think the answer to that is no for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, my recent research has pointed out some reasons why we should, you know, think of the uh, think of debt in a little bit of a different way. But also the the student loan market in general is much smaller than uh, the mortgage market as a share of the U.S. economy. So we just don't have the potential for the same type of crisis, even thing, even if things were to go sour. But uh, more importantly, I think what we do have are individual crises. So on average, things don't look so bad. There are certainly a very large number of individuals, even if it's a small fraction of the overall population, who are facing pretty serious financial constraints because of um, decisions they've made regarding higher education and the outcomes that they've, they've faced after the fact. And I want to call attention to uh, the paper that you've recently published with Matt Chingos, a colleague also in the Brown Center on Education Policy. Is a student loan crisis on the horizon? And you guys break this, break this down. So um, I know you have some data in here about the percentage uh, of people whose debt is up to a certain amount. And, and it really is striking that it's only a very small percentage have what some would call kind of a, a maybe a life-altering or calamity level of student debt. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So if you were only to look at the media coverage of this issue over the past few years, uh, it might lead you to believe that uh, debt burdens of over $100,000 are quite common. Uh, so in fact, you know, the, the statistic I like to cite from the report is that only 7% of house of young households in this country hold more than or held more than fifty thousand dollars in debt in two thousand ten, which is the last year of data that we had available. So really, a different story from you know what a lot of us you know perceived from the media coverage. And so, where did uh, people in households with that enormous amount of debt incur that debt? Are they all going to the most expensive private schools? Well, so you know, there's a a very high correlation between. Uh, between debt and earnings. So we see that uh, uh, the highest, the people with the highest earnings in the economy have the highest amounts of education. A lot of them also have the highest debt burdens. So yeah, some of it's coming from people going to elite expensive institutions, um, going on to receive graduate degrees, which are costly, uh, and, then, and then carrying large burdens as a result. So why do you think uh, that so many people seem to be invested in, in a narrative that it's a huge crisis? You've seen Senator Elizabeth Warren um, introduce legislation to try to uh, ease the debt, the student loan debt burden. Um, but you have her opponents on the other side say, well, it's a matter of personal responsibility. You know, I think it was a pretty broadly held uh, belief that this was a, that it was a crisis uh, that was coming. Uh, I think 
part of the reason is that we were having this discussion for a long time without a lot of data. Uh, and so people were looking to the, the people around them to sort of form their uh, understanding of what was happening. And people in journalism were looking to the people that they'd interviewed who make great stories, and those people have lots of debt. And so we all inferred from that uh, what was happening throughout the distribution. And I think that, um, you know, it was completely reasonable that without data that we all formed this impression of, of the market that wasn't exactly correct. I think that's one of the things that, that Brookings scholars do best is, is you bring data to bear on important policy issues. So do you find that your work in this area recently uh, being in, on media programs, do you think it's uh, helping to change the conversation some? Yes, I, I I do believe that people are beginning to think about debt differently. Um, certainly not everyone. There are a lot of people who are quite angry with the, the story that we were telling with the data. And I don't think we were successful in, in getting them to take a second look at what's happening here. But I think there are a lot of people who are connected with policymaking who are taking seriously the work. And, you know, it, it's not a conclusive story that says we don't need to think about this anymore. Let's move on. But what it does is gets us to have a more nuanced conversation about what's happening in student debt. And rather than coming up with solutions to address the problem that's not there, uh, thinking about finding where the problems really are and, and coming up with policy solutions to address those problems. I hope that the, uh, the angry people aren't too bothersome uh, in this realm. So what are some of the uh, the more nuanced ways that you're looking at it? What are some of the, the issues that you think we really should be focused on? I think one thing is we want to think about uh, social safety nets for borrowers. So a lot of the policy discussion around student loans has just been around providing relief to people with debt. Um, one thing, uh, a lot of the proposals that are on the table would essentially give uh, greater benefit to people who have the greatest debts. And there's the misperception that people with largest debts are the ones who are in the most trouble. Uh, in fact, measures of financial hardship are the greatest among people with very small debts. Um, so it sort of highlights the idea that the that we should be we should be looking at the the cir financial circumstances of borrowers and not just providing relief based on the dollar value of the loans that they have outstanding. And one of your uh pieces of research for the Brown Center, you actually did a comparison of a typical household expense sheet, if you will, and the kind uh, of payments that the typical household makes on student loans, and you kind of put it in this range. Can you talk a little bit about that finding? Sure. So th this was a piece um, that, that really relied on the same data that we used for the, the, the previous report we talked about. And really what I wanted to do is put in context the amount of money that typical households were spending on student loan repayment. Um, certainly there are households that are, are paying large fractions of their disposable income um, to repay their debts. But when you look at people who are in the middle of the distribution, uh, it seems like the amount of money they're paying is, is entirely reasonable. Uh, and when you say distribution, you mean the income distribution, roughly the middle class, if you will. Or the distribution of debt. Okay. Although I have heard some charge that, well, that, while that might be true, while the, the average monthly payment is manageable, the payment schedule is spread out over a much longer period of time than it was maybe a generation ago. And thus, for a longer period of time, having a some kind of impact on a household's finances. Yeah. So one of the primary findings from our paper actually was that the amount that uh, the fraction of uh, monthly income that's spent on, on lower loan repayment has not increased over the past 20, 
20 years. So this is sort of a, a startling finding given the narrative that we've had. Uh, and so a lot of people have picked up on that point and said, well, sure, but people are paying over a longer period of time. Therefore, you know, there is, there is a larger burden now. And that would be true, except we also find some evidence that increases in lifetime income more than offset the increases in debt. And so we see, you know, two things happening. One, that people uh, are, are better off than they were um, 20 years ago. And second, that they're spreading the debt over a longer period of time, which is really a separate issue. What we care about is the total burden of debt relative your, to your total earnings capacity. Uh, I see the lengthening of the repayment period as actually a positive thing. So if you think of um, education as an asset that pays off over the course of your lifetime, um, what we're doing is bringing the repayment period closer in line to the life of the asset. So it's sort of like buying a house that you expect to live in for the rest of your life and paying for it over the next five years instead of 30 years. We're all sort of comfortable with the fact that it makes sense to spread out the financing over the longer period of time because the asset is going to bring value to you throughout that period. I think that's a an interesting, it uh, seems like a fresh way to look at education as an investment. Is that a new uh maybe within the last four or five years, concept of, of looking at education as an investment over your lifetime that has dividends over your lifetime? You know, I, I think that for a long time we've thought of education as an investment. Um, it comes from classical economic theory. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I think people used to think of, of education as um, – just an experience that's good that's good for people to have. And as the returns have sort of tightened up with the uh, Great Recession, people have become more conscious of the bottom line and their decision-making around higher education. So I think this has shifted the emphasis to people thinking of this as a financial decision and, and education as an investment. Now, there's we know that there's different kinds of uh, higher education. There's for your private universities, there's the elite universities, there's public colleges, there's two-year colleges, there's vocational school. I'm going to read something that Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, said recently to a group in Kentucky. Uh, and um, he said, so I think the best short-term solution is for parents to be very cost-conscious in shopping around for higher education alternatives. Not everybody needs to go to Yale. I don't know about you guys, but I went to a regular old Kentucky college. And some people would say, I've done okay. So he's, he's suggesting that, uh, I think, maybe some of this student debt is being incurred by people who are going to the most expensive universities. But it also reminds us that not everybody can go to the most elite universities. So is their return on investment going to be the same as somebody who does go to uh, a more elite university? You know, I think what he's he's really getting to is the fact that um, people need to be more conscious consumers of higher education. So uh, the president uh, in the State of the Union uh, address, uh, gosh, I wish I can't remember the year uh, at the moment, um, but made the claim that you know we want to have the greatest fraction of college graduates in the, in this country uh, by the year 2020, and this was only a statement about higher education. Uh, and this really su supported the narrative that people should be going to college at any cost, that it's just sort of 
blindly a, a thing that we should all do and not really think twice about. And then it was a few years later when in the, the State of the Union address, he talked about introducing um, the college shopping sheet so that people should be informed consumers of education. And I think what's happened is that we've had a shift in that, um, you know, one, that starting out with the fact that people should go to college without, without asking too many questions and evolving to the place where people need to think very carefully about the decision. So we, well, we have a sort of a quasi-market for higher education in this country. So it's subsidized to a great deal by the government, um, both um, federal and state governments. But um, but people also have uh, faced the repercussions of their decision making in terms of the finances. So they're choosing the price that they pay to go to college and they're reaping the financial reward from uh, the degree that they earn. So in order for that quasi market, I'll call it, to work efficiently, people can't be making decisions about higher education blindly. And, and in particular, they can't be insensitive to price. And I think that's the point that he was really making. Um, you know, it, it seems that this overemphasis on people going to college has caused people to be insensitive to the information about both price and the financial returns on the back end. Um, so I think I think getting back to this idea that people need to be very savvy consumers, pay attention to price and returns is absolutely spot on. And it's going to be the solution if there is one to the tuition inflation problem that we're facing. Well, I want to get to that problem in just a minute. Uh, but on this question of um, the price, elite colleges, consumers should uh, make better decisions. Um, there is a suggestion, especially I think amongst um, progressives, maybe Elizabeth Warren uh, would be in this group, who say that if the most elite universities the ones are the ones that give the highest return on the education investment are affordable only to the wealthiest people, then that uh, excludes much of the middle class. And so then only the wealthiest people will go to the best colleges and the cycle perpetuates itself. Do you have any... Uh, any views on that? You know, I'm not sure that's entirely true. Um, so institutions do a pretty good job at uh, what I would call as an economist price discrimination um, or providing grants to people from low-income households. So essentially, they're trying to um, match what the families are able to pay in order to get the enrollment. Uh, I think they're seeking um, seeking students from lower-income households and sometimes succeeding more or less in getting them to enroll. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think there, there certainly are uh, concerns about social mobility. Higher education is really one of the most important tools we have for encouraging social mobility. That's why it's critically important that we continue to have subsidies in this market. Um, and, and we do that. So it, it's a concern. It's something to be aware of and, and craft policy around. But I don't think it's, a, um, it, it's something that we're failing at currently. And I believe it's the case that the sticker price of a college education is not necessarily the price that every student pays for that college education. Is that true? Yeah, that's exactly right. Actually, I I was thinking that without even saying it because I'm I'm so used to the idea at this point. But that's exactly right. So when um, a, an individual applies to go to a particular institution, they don't really find out the price that they'll be asked to pay until they've been accepted to the school. Um, so it's sort of a, a weird market in that way. But that's exactly right. Students are paying different prices based on their ability to pay. And yet, many uh, in, in the media, many in the public are looking at the actual just the sticker price of college and kind of freaking out. I mean. Uh, and a personal example, I went to uh, college 25 years ago, 
and uh, Georgetown University. And the tuition when I was there, I think, was somewhere in the mid ten thousand range, maybe fourteen, fifteen thousand, and then fees and room and board. So maybe it cost twenty thousand dollars a year or something. Uh, I think today the the tuition and the the total package to go to Georgetown, just the sticker price, is twice, three times that high, which uh, is a, is a kind of a shocking number to see. You know, the price of a four year uh, private institution could could hit a quarter of a million dollars, and so people are agitated about that. But that doesn't tell the whole story. Yeah, I think that's right. So if you look at tuition inflation with listed um, tuition and fees, it's been astronomical. When you look at a net tuition or, or net price, what people are actually paying, it's still pretty big, but it's not quite as bad. Um, I think there's a concern that students are looking at uh, the price tag, particularly students who are maybe first co- first generation college goers and being turned off by that information. Um, you know, not recognizing that there are uh, there's a difference between net price and, and list price. Um, but it seems like our discussions around higher education have evolved. So to the point that this is becoming um, more widely understood. Do you know why uh, the costs have seemed to have seemed to have gone up so much, though? I mean, what are we what would I be getting out of a Georgian education today at two or three times the cost that I didn't get when I was a student there? You know, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I think it's it's what everyone's asking. I'm often at the table uh, when policymakers are asking administrative uh, the administration of institutions this question: Why is the price tag continuing to rise? Uh, and you know, I don't think there are very clear answers. Um, one thing that I'll say uh, to to touch back on the consumer angle here is that I think you know if there's a way that we can address the problem. Um, not using uh, strict regulation like price controls or something like that. It's through getting the consumers to actually police the market here. So as I was talking about before, I think that uh, people are too insensitive to price when it comes to shopping for college. And if there's anything that will get institutions to keep their prices in line and and um, you know keep them from going up and up every year, it's consumers walking away when they see the price tag they're asked to pay. So I think as people become more conscientious, conscientious consumers here, um, we can we'll see the institutions respond and and a lessening of that inflation. At least that's my hope. So what alternatives do uh, students have in this uh, market of education beyond? Uh, and we've talked about it: the elite four-year colleges. There's other many other kinds of institutions of higher education and other ways for people to get good return on their investment, right? Right, right. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. We talk in theory about this market for education and, and the broad set of choice that, that students have and, and how they should make that choice and, and how that will improve the market. The reality is that uh, most students go to school very close to home, and so that really limits the set of options that are available to them. So the fortunately, I believe, the, the recent innovation of uh, online education really can disrupt that model. So, you know, if previously uh, a student re- only had a couple options within driving distance of, of where they were choosing to live, um, that limited their ability to really have power as a consumer. Whereas when you introduce these outside options uh, with the online education, which can be uh, reached anywhere that has internet access, um, you can really put more pressure on those institutions to keep prices in line with value. Is, uh, is, is the online education component more than, uh, I'll just say the acronym, MOOC, 
I can't remember what it stands for, Massive Online Open Course. Right, right. So the MOOCs are sort of a, an experimental model um, of these online open free courses. I, I don't think they're the future of education. I, I, I think that... Um, you know, people are still looking for the credentials that come from a somewhat traditional institution, and the online course offerings are are um, are an innovation, but still close enough to the to the traditional model that the labor market is taking them seriously. So students can get credentials from them um, that will help them go out and get a job. MOOCs are not at that point yet. It still tends to be individual courses um, uh, with less participation and and not the same accountability standards. So to loop back to the topic that we started with, uh, student debt, what kinds of policy choices, specific policy ideas would you recommend uh, either the federal government or, I don't know, state governments or even universities, colleges take um, in the coming years? Sure. So I think what's come out of my recent work is this realization that the problem is not hugely widespread with student debt. But what it's highlighted is that there are individuals who are certainly struggling. One thing that we don't talk about a lot, but is absolutely true, and we documented in our research as well, is that the debt is increasing at a tremendous rate. So people are entering the labor force highly levered. And for the most part, they're facing labor labor market returns in, in um in the form of wages that are enough to compensate for that. But when people make decisions that don't pay off, they're very far from financial security, farther than uh, borrowers from previous generations because they've levered up so much with the, the large debts they have. So I think what that emphasizes is that we have a really critical need for ensuring social safety nets for those people who do face these dire circumstances. And as I said, we don't believe this is a hugely widespread problem, but for the people who are in those circumstances, it is a personal crisis. And so we have a pretty robust system now with the income-based repayment programs. Uh, eligibility was just expanded for those recently by administrative action. Uh, I think that's a, a, a good step. And I just uh, would encourage policymakers to be thinking about how to um, streamline those programs, make them efficient, and ensure that uh, they'll be around for the long haul. Uh, before we leave, uh, looking ahead, what other kinds of projects are you looking at? A lot of my work now is um, trying to understand how students perceive debt. It seems that uh, some of the problems and the problems that we have in the student loan space is coming from uh, borrowers misunderstanding the decisions that they're making while they're in school. Um, so I'm working uh, with institutions on some interventions to to get at uh, the financial literacy problems and hopefully understand how we can uh, generate better decision making and um, uh, a be just a better financial understanding. Well, uh, Beth, thank you for your time today. Uh, bringing data to bear on policy problems is in the best Brookings tradition. I appreciate your time. Thank you. That's it for the Brookings Cafeteria this week. To learn more about research and policy recommendations on student loans from Beth Akers and her colleagues, visit the Brown Center on our website at brookings.edu slash browncenter. Finally today, I'd like to thank Zachary Kulzer, our fearless editor and producer, Elena Saxena, our researcher and intern extraordinaire, Jessica Pavone, who designed our wonderful logo, and Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahin for managing the podcast on our website. If you'd like to hear more from the Brookings Cafeteria, subscribe on iTunes. You can also visit our website at brookings.edu slash bcp where I post notes from the shows, provide links to the research I've mentioned, and where you can listen to our entire library of episodes. If you have any comments for us, send an email to bcp at brookings.edu.